The swamp without a still is just a tent. A martini without olives doesn't quite make it. And Mash Minute is intended for mature audiences. Put on your headphones. Listen for the tone of your favorite podcast, Mash Minute. Well, it's a minute-by-minute detailed analysis. Of the movie without which the series wouldn't exist. Megan and Tooney, and guest will make three. Goddamn Army, MASH Minute. Welcome back to MASH Minute, where we analyze the 1970 Robert Altman film, One Minute at a Time. I'm Megan Coleman. I'm Tierney Steele. And coming back for number two, it's Hal Bryan, the airplane nerd from the Experimental Aircraft Association in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So I get to be your first guest and your second guest. It's Yay! amazing how that happens. It's crazy. <laughs> if you're a big fan of Movies by Minutes podcast, you may be a little thrown off because we started on a Tuesday and our guest isn't here for the whole week. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought I signed on for these lovely five minute chunks every week. We are going to release every weekday. We just wanted to start with a certain date. Because um, reasons. Because, because reasons. reasons. Will, will, will those reasons ever be disclosed? Because now I'm curious. I completely forgot to mention yesterday because as we're recording this, I'm like, yeah, whatever, minute one, it doesn't matter. And then I was like, oh, yeah, we picked that day because it was the day of the start of the Korean conflict. Ah. Things we probably could have mentioned yesterday. Yeah, whoops, sorry, guys. To be fair, I think, got to us. <laughs> I think we mentioned a lot yesterday. <laughs> it does feel like a lot. I feel like we mentioned 45 minutes worth of things yesterday, <laughs> almost. So I you think know, we're in the clear. But yeah, we, we chose that on purpose. And then instead of saying, oh, our guests will be on for a week, we're having our guests on for, what's the nice way to put this? Chunks of the movie? Yeah, chunks. <laughs> chunks. It's a technical term. Thematically themed chunks. So, spoiler, we're going to try and get Hal back tomorrow as well. And that's our three minutes of opening credits. A chunk, if you will, of opening credits. This is minute two. It continues. Yeah, guess what I've been talking about. The theme song is playing over helicopters, bringing wounded to the mash. And our minute ends with more credits. And the song continuing as the helicopters approach what fans will recognize as the hill with the landing pad. And really, as you alluded to yesterday, the star of this minute, in my opinion, is the word introducing. (laughs) It it really is everywhere. Introducing so-and-so, introducing so-and-so. If you've seen this movie and know how the movie ends, you may get kind of a whiplash with all these names going by. Just keep that feeling in the back of your mind for the next almost two hours. Well, more than two hours of (laughs) podcast. Almost two hours of movie. This is Mash Minute. We're analyzing the TV, sh- the movie. It feels like we're analyzing the TV show, though, right now, because we, this is this is the opening to it, except we have lyrics here. Yes. That was so jarring for me the first time first time I saw it. I, I even remember as a kid, maybe, you know, sort of late 70s, like, that was a big deal playground trivia question. Ooh. Do you know that the MASH theme song has a name? It's about suicide. Like, it was like a huge scandalous thing. And it's like, shut up. No, it isn't. And then then you watch the credits. Oh, yeah. Sure oh, enough. There it is. Yeah, there it is. The, the song Suicide is Painless is written for the movie. Shocker, I'm sure. His <laughs> music is by Johnny Mandel. Again, shocking. Johnny Mandel wrote music for MASH. What? 
And its lyrics are by a Mike whose last name might be familiar to you. <laughs> so, yeah, why don't we start with Mike Altman, the 14-year-old who wrote Suicide is Painless. That just, that blows my mind. I know, right? I, well, I, I was had... like, wait, that's a typo. No, that's not a typo. Oh, okay. So is there truth to the sort of story that goes around that Robert Altman was trying to do lyrics and he wanted it to be a really stupid song and he, yes. he struggled coming up with lyrics that were dumb enough? He has said that in multiple interviews from the beginning. So he went to his 14-year-old son, who was a bit of a, as, as all 14-year-olds are, music <laughs> lyricist. Of course, yes. And asked him <laughs> And to probably a poet as well. We all go through that phase too. Yeah, oh, true. Yeah, they're they're definitely related. And uh, and he did. He wrote them. This could have just been a favor. But what I love is Ingo Preminger when he was brought this said, "We need to write this up officially. This needs to be a contract." He he gets the credit in the movie lyrics by Mike Altman. And in an interview, he said, "I don't want to steal." What he said was, "I don't want to steal your ideas." And so he called him into his office at Twentieth Century Fox and was like, "All right." Here, here's the contract. Here's how much money you're gonna make. Here's how it's all all very official, which I absolutely loved because if you ever watched the TV show Halt and Catch Fire, oh yeah. In later seasons, there's a really great scene where they end up using an idea that was come up by one of their kids, and they're saying like, "We need to do this officially, or you know, we're gonna get screwed down the road." And the person who is the kid's dad was like. I was going to give her 50 bucks and a ride to the mall. What are you talking about? And all his partners are like, no, 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 no. This needs to be above the board or it's going to end badly, you know, legally. And what I love is that poor Mike Altman had to spend the rest of his life having his dad tell everyone that he wrote the lyrics because his dad couldn't come up with something dumb enough. But he ended up making more money than his dad did from the franchise MASH. That was... You know, I guess a nice little bit of sweet justice. But that that whole I couldn't come up with anything dumb enough thing just sounds like, you know, like a really jealous dad. (laughs) Doesn't it? I I like that. The original intent was that this song would just be used. It's used later in the movie. That's what it it was written for a specific scene. But it kind of and and that's why it has like this punny title, whatever, (laughs) what it's about. But it just works so well here. And they, I, I read a book um, about Altman soundtracks that just points out that this is really where we start seeing MASH as an anti-Vietnam War movie. This whole, like, the whole idea of your opening credits theme song to the movie being about suicide. It really does. <sighs> it, it sets that tone. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had done some, some digging fairly recently about another dark anti-war comedy from uh, 1970, Catch-22. In aviation geek circles, which is, you know, where I am, there are, uh, that movie's well known for having 16 World War II B-25 bombers, and there's an epic takeoff scene and a bunch of cool flying and stuff like that. My organization owns one of the airplanes used in the movie, and we just finished a restoration and just flew for the first time in about 30 years a couple of weeks ago as we're recording this. But anyway, that whole idea that that movie is set in World War II and is based on the Joseph Heller book about Catch-22, an impossible bureaucracy, and it's got... MASH is far more sophisticated about it, but it's got that same attitude. It's on the surface, well, this is a war about bomber pilots in World War II, but it's uh, it's a very, very bitter movie. It's a very, very dark satire, and it's aimed squarely at uh, at the Vietnam War. Yeah. 
from that same music book. In fact, it'd be nice if I flipped to the top of my notes and said that it was written by Gail Sherwood McGee. <laughs> Robert Altman's soundtracks, film, music, and sound from MASH to a Prairie Home Companion. It just points out that Michael Altman, whose lyrics show the influence of contemporary and anti-Vietnam folk rock singer-songwriters such as Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, reveal a cynical, morbid view of the war that likely resonated with many anti-Vietnam viewers and listeners. And what I absolutely love is she does this amazing analysis of how Suicide is Painless is like The Sounds of Silence from The Graduate. Oh, wow. The the layered male voices. Yeah. Talking about falsetto-style harmony. That nice acoustic guitar that that opens it up. Deceptive cadences, minor chord, expected resolution to a major. It's... It's really interesting, and it, it's she said, you know, intentionally or not, these similarities invoke the anthem for new Hollywood, as Suicide is Painless places MASH firmly within the youth-oriented, Vietnam-focused market. And I do wonder, you know, inten- she says intentional or not, and I wonder if you're 14 years old in 1969, that's what it is, right? I mean... You know, I, it's... Uh... I think you're absolutely right. I think when you're a teenager and you're seeing people that are a few years older than you getting drafted and going off to some place that nobody heard of before, you know, before this war, I think that attitude was pretty much everywhere. And that was, you know, 1970s, right on the heels of the, you don't want to overstate it, but really in the, the mid and late 60s, the whole shift of popular culture just started focusing on, on youth. Mm-hmm. And it really hadn't been the case before. And it's really hard to, to sort of wrap your head around if you've grown up that way it's hard to imagine you know sort of what it would have been like before but it was really cemented in the 60s and then of course we're kicking this off 1970 and mm-hmm. it's uh you know we're going to go too dark but it's it, it's sad that a 14 year old could come up with lyrics like this but then again as you said every 14 year old is our <laughs> poets and lyricists and everything else and they think they have something super deep and super angsty to say and they know so. it all there was exactly. a really interesting tweet, though, and I didn't know who it was referencing, but it was comparing someone who wrote their own lyrics and what they wrote when they were 19 versus what they wrote now that they're in their 30s. And the 19-year-old had all these deep, heart-wrenching things to say. And then the 30-year-old was like, I wrote a pop song. Ooh, baby. Ooh, baby. <laughs> That's like this idea that... that you almost, it's weird because we always think of like, oh, the older you get, the more cynical you get, the more jaded you get, the more things you've seen. But it almost kind of is, you know, you feel everything so much more when you're younger. Right. Yeah. The drama knob gets turned down <laughs> quite a bit the older <laughs> older you get. So can I ask you two a question? Mm. Sure. Do you think that the the lyrics that uh, you know, 14-year-old Mike Altman wrote and allegedly made what at least a million bucks for do you think those lyrics are good like good for this movie like or just like good just sort of well written yeah things i i i almost have to like google it and look at it written out because <laughs> i i was just reading through it and it's it kind of bounces around for me like some of the things yeah. are you know that the, the the well, title is powerful. I mean, and... also allegedly write it like in five to ten minutes too. Right. Oh, yeah. 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 And I, I'm sorry, that question wasn't confrontational. I was just like seriously no, no, interested no, no, in your, no, your opinion. Like, oh, way. you think this is good? But, uh, it's just more about, it, it's got that, some of the lines I think are, are powerful and, and mm-hmm. some of them, so I did just pull up the lyrics, but there's like some of it has that teenage over drama, the sort of time <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. will pierce yeah. our skin, you yeah. know, things like this. The one that I think is the, uh, it's 
somehow is the most 14 year old uh, writing making things rhyme is a brave man once yeah. requested me to answer questions that are key is it to be or not to be so it's a little shakespeare what the heck Wait for and it. i replied oh why ask me <laughs> that yeah i was gonna say i think the first three verses are really good uh through early morning fog i see I find a way to try, or, um... No, visions of the things sorry, to be. Sorry, vision... No, I, I'm, I'm looking at the oh, first... Oh. The game of life is hard to play. Oh, oh, I see what you're doing now, sorry. Really works well for this movie. Yeah. And then through the only way to win is cheat. Like, the, right. the, the lyrics that are almost as if a poker game fit this movie so perfectly, but have that weird double-layered meaning... And, and it just really evokes what this movie is going to be. And then you're right. And then those last ones, <laughs> it just kind of goes off the rails. Right. Those were probably, I think some of those were written, if, if it took them five minutes, some mm-hmm. of those were written at like the four minute 30 mark. Yeah. We realize, you know, the, the deadline's approaching. But, you know, you mentioned the uh, game of life is hard to play and there's a line, you know, I'm going to lose yeah. it anyway. That's good. Yeah. That's that's mm-hmm. cynical and sardonic. The losing card all Sunday and, lay. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. Yeah. And that sets the tone, I think, for the film. And and the, geez, the mood mm-hmm. of the era. You know, we went from absolutely unbridled optimism in the, in the 30s to the, the, the grim World War II of the 40s. And then we get out of World War II into the early 50s. And we said, you know, we're, we're done with the war. The good guys win. And opportunities are unbound. And then Korea becoming this, uh, the Korean conflict becoming this little, almost like a, a forward to, you know, to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Korea was, people were saying, well, wait, we, it's not as clear cut. We didn't just march in and, and win. You know, there, there wasn't a victory parade. And then, of course, you get mired in Vietnam 10, 15 years later when it early starts. But it is, that is interesting to see full-on Vietnam-era thinking applied mm-hmm. to you know, applied to the Korean conflict. And I, I think that's why I, I think MASH works so much better than Catch-22 because you can look at Korea and start to feel that, you know, why should we even be here and this is miserable and is there a point to it all? It's harder to look at World War II when you've got yeah. clearer, at least through the prism of history, you've got these clearer lines drawn between good and evil and I mean, how could it ever be bad to go and bomb Nazis and you know, that's a pretty easy bad guy to draw. So that Catch-22 really, I struggle with that one, but MASH works a lot better. Yeah, the, th- the themes are there. but <laughs> yeah. the feel- I, I was just listening to, I'm blanking on the name, but they interviewed someone on Pod Save America who had written a book about executive power and how it's been used to get us into wars since 1812 and how we shouldn't have been in the War of 1812. That was a war of opportunity <laughs> for America that we lost. Wow. <laughs> I've never heard anybody like out actively protesting the War of well, 1812. They said what they wanted to do was conquer Canada, and he's like, "We didn't. We lost that war. <laughs> yeah, we we just that. didn't talk about it that way." And like the point being that Vietnam wasn't the first war America lost; it was just the first war we would admit to losing. Right. But talking about how we got involved in Korea and why was it was it a good war or kind of where where was that line and talking about. Eisenhower being like the the most anti-war president because he'd been there. It was it was fascinating interview. That's all I'm saying. I wish I could remember the guy's name, but it just I mean, if how differently would we feel about this song if it ended with the verse, the only way to win is cheat and lay it down the before I'm beat the losing card. 
And to another, give my seat, for that's the only painless feat. If you're talking about committing suicide to get out of going to Vietnam, knowing that someone else will go in your place. Yeah, that gets heavy and deep very, very quickly. Yeah. If he just hadn't written the the next bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think he really had something there. (laughs) Did uh, did Mike? Altman ever like write another song or I mean, are there any I, other lyrics or anything that we know of? I don't, I think he gave up on his musical career as much <laughs> as any 14 year old does. Right. Let me just look and see I'm if they do like, yeah, well, the song went, you know, the song did pretty well. Might as well go out on top. Oh, wait a second. He's on the soundtrack for a different movie. According to IMDb. Really? Let me investigate this further. 15 soundtrack credits? Oh, this is all suicide is painless being used. Well, that's yeah. how he gets his money, let's be fair. Right, because I know, like, even Family Guy had Stewie sing suicide is painless. <laughs> yep. That tells you and anything about... Mike Altman gets his money every time. Every time. It was apparently used on The Simpsons twice. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I mean, he's been a producer. He's done other things. It, it's not... Like, this is it, but let's face it. If you write this at 14, why why would you do it? bother. Right. Enjoy your passion projects. Exactly. You're fine. <laughs> He's listed on the soundtrack for Anatomy 2. Is that Suicide is Painless? I bet it is. Because this is a doctor horror movie. Uh, maybe? I bet they use Suicide is Painless. Let me double check that. I'll make this sound better. Yeah, it's the lyrics. They use the lyrics. Oh, okay. So yeah, Mike Altman just rode this all the way to the bank. I mean, good on him. Yeah, well done. <laughs> oh, and there's another Mike Altman who is a American lightweight rower. Yeah, I saw him, and then there's another Michael He's... Altman who's like who's done some like animation stuff. Michael, really? this is names. not an unattractive man. Anyway, close <laughs> that pack now before. Uh... <laughs> dun dun dun. <laughs> And the other person, I love that Mike Altman gets paid every time the TV show airs in reruns since they uh, don't use the lyrics. Uh, Yeah, perhaps unsurprisingly, the makers of the hit television show replaced the film's version with an (laughs) up-tempo, big-band-style instrumental arrangement theme, after which the song itself became better known as the innocuous theme from M.A.S.H. (laughs) (laughs) And they actually had a couple different versions of this, which I, I always love picking up on, but... Johnny Mandel wrote the music for the lyrics, which is what you will hear watching the television show. And it's funny because, to me, being a person who does the movies by minute of M.A.S.H., Johnny Mandel should be up there with Danny Elfman and John Williams, and he's not. (laughs) Yeah, he's not nearly as well known now, but... I was really surprised by that I was looking through. I'm, like, known for M.A.S.H., the, what is it, The, the something else? That he actually got nominated for, and Caddyshack, and then it's like, <laughs> and he did some other things, and that's it. Let's not talk about. Okay, so about Mash, I'm like, what? Mash. Maybe so, it's just because I've been so steeped in research on this movie for the past two years. <laughs> it does take over. Uh, it does take over your life. These these shows, but then, then then this is the payoff right now. Is people out there listening and having fun watching you go crazy, yeah. or listening or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, speaking of instrumentals and, and lyrics and things like that, this is probably pretty well known in the Movies by Minute audience, because we're all, all so hardcore, but um, 
it is uh, it is worth pointing out that Gene Roddenberry wrote lyrics to the Star Trek theme, <laughs> and it's generally considered that he did it just so that he could have the the royalty, so that he would continue to get paid whenever they used the music in addition to his work on the show. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, may I read a, a, a stanza or two from this? Just do. because I, you know, I, I'm a Star Trek guy and tons of respect for Gene Roddenberry. He was a cop and a pilot before he got into the TV world. And I, I share those things, but he should have hired a 14 year old, I think, to write the <laughs> lyrics. Um, the uh-huh. lyrics are uh, beyond the rim of the starlight. My love is wandering in star flight. His journey ends never. His Star Trek will go on forever. But tell him while he wanders his starry sea, remember, remember me. It's not horrible, but it's, I'm, I'm groaning on the inside. Yeah. yeah. Great either. Right. I, as soon as you read those, you think, yeah, the instrumental uh, was the right choice. Yeah. I, I don't know if it was ever actually recorded with lyrics. I've never heard it if it has, but somebody, I feel somebody like out there would know. it should have to be to count. That would make me very happy. See, I was getting thrown off because I of when I grew up. I grew up with the Next Generation theme. Oh, sure, yeah. And so I'm like, wait, that doesn't fit. And then I'm like, Tierney, you're thinking of the wrong show. Uh, infamously, I thought I had grown up watching Star Trek. Like, I knew my dad. I was like, yeah, my dad watched a couple episodes of Next Gen, but I didn't really know it. And then I started rewatching it as an adult. And it took a couple seasons in of watching, you know, an episode a day to realize I used to have a dance to the theme song. As a little kid? Really? Say what, girl? Because it was a big deal if I finished my bath in time. So please picture eight-year-old Tierney in a flannel nightgown twirling about. I had a whole dance worked out to the opening theme song, and I turned to Chris. I was like, I think I've seen more of this show than I remembered. You know, It was like muscle memory. I was like... (laughs) Oh, yeah, I did watch this show. And this is the moment when we, we all have to be sad that this is audio only. Yeah. Because otherwise, if this was, if this was video, there would be... There would be a demand there, for... Exactly. I've never had a dance to the MASH theme song, though, for all that I heard it. I mean, you get the little, like, she's like, dude, at the end, or they're going down in the Jeep, like, do, do, do. It does kind of demand a flourish there at the end, but somehow like the beginning, especially the one with the lyrics, the the sort of sad Mm. guitar and the voices, I think you could just get away with the sort of the sad Charlie Brown walking away kind of kind of thing that we saw so much on uh, uh, Arrested Development. Hmm. Well, I will say Johnny Mandel wrote a good wrote a good theme song. He he did it. I'm trying to think. Oh, but before we get too far away from it, lyrics. Star Trek, Next Generation, the band The Double Clicks put Data's poem to Ode to Spot to music. Oh my god! If gosh. you haven't seen it, look it up. It is well worth your time. If you know <laughs> what I'm talking about, you will enjoy this song. <laughs> and so. imagine if uh, if somebody doesn't know what you're talking about, looks it up, and that's their introduction <laughs> to the entire world wow. of Star Trek. They are going to be just deliriously confused. <laughs> But that's amazing. I haven't seen that. So you guys talk amongst yourselves. I've got YouTube videos to watch. <laughs> easily done. Easily done. The Sandpiper was the other movie that I was trying to think of, of Johnny Mandel's credits. And he has been nominated for an Academy Award. I assume he's doing perfectly fine in the royalties department. So I'm not going to... 
And he's worked with so many amazing people that it's like, all right, I'm not going to worry about you too much. But I just felt a little bad that because the Mike Altman story is such a good story. Right. <laughs> he, he doesn't get brought up nearly as much. And it was his idea to add all the jazzy Japanese music we're going to hear in this movie. Ooh. He remembered. He remembered being in Japan in the 50s and that being like a whole genre. And so a lot of that was added afterwards at his suggestion. So I just, you know, props where they're due. (laughs) That is very cool. And if you haven't yet looked up this song, the fact that Suicide is Painless was released as a single. Folks, I mean, Hal, last (laughs) episode you mentioned growing up in the 70s was a weird time. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure I'm going to mention multiple times that my dad was, he was a little bit older than Mike Altman, but not by, was he the same age as Mike Altman? Ooh, Ooh. this is a really good, but he refers to the 70s as the time that taste forgot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Oh, my dad says that too sometimes. Oh, that is absolutely perfect. Just look up the record sleeve. Yes. The MASH, first of all. Yes. The MASH, Suicide is Painless. (laughs) It was a time. (laughs) It was, yeah, it was a time. It's categorized as folk soft rock. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So, yeah. Wow. That's, uh, that's, to to quote Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) That does pretty much sum it up. You know, talking about the whole lack of taste in that, in that era. I mean, it, okay. So 1977 brought us Star Wars. And so there's some things that, that I can Mm -hmm. be, you know, be grateful for from the seventies, but, um, there's a website out there. If if anybody hasn't seen it, if you really want to get a feel for just what, how awful the seventies looked, go search out plaid stallions. Uh, which is uh, just such a fantastic name for a website. You'll see a lot of sort of vintage ads and things of just the horrible clothes and stuff like that. And then uh, there's a book, a great book out there by a guy named James Lillix, who's written all kinds of interesting stuff. It's called Interior Desecration. And it's nothing but just a photo gallery of, of awful painting and wallpaper and paneling and shag carpets and stuff from the 70s. So again, just showing you. Uh, so... Anytime, you know, when I see people that didn't, that weren't there, that didn't live through it, get nostalgic for the 70s and try to bring it back in kind of a young and hipster sort of way, it just makes me crazy. I'm perfectly, I bring back the 80s, all you want, great music, lots of fun, terrible hair, skinny ties, but, you know, just leave the 70s be. So this is why I should not mention I collect 70s vintage dresses then, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh my I, gosh, that's and amazing. And part of when we grew up too. The classy um, ones, not the weird ones. Okay. For years. I had the um, advertisement. It was all them in the special pajamas, and it was for when that 70s show debuted. And the tagline was, if it weren't the 70s, you'd swear it was the 90s. And the <laughs> that's whole funny. idea yes. being that. Yeah, it, there was a pretty big yep, attempt there. That was right over. And, and that's what we yeah. thought the 70s were, was was those outfits, those shows. And it the became good a joke amongst my, dad's, yes. amongst my dad's friends. They all loved that show because they were like, who is who? So I remember them sitting around, and uh, yeah, my dad was the hide, apparently. So. He was the hide. Oh, yep, that's fantastic. Yep. So yeah, it 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 transcended generation. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up obsessed with the just, and that's a weird thing being a kid of the '80s because I think of the '80s as like this uh, kind of wasteland where like. <laughs> Yeah, Back to the Future was cool. Like, there were cool movies. There was cool stuff going on in it. But very much the 80s to me was either 
late 70s, early 80s, or late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, it was like a pretty stuff, big transition period. That's true. Yeah, like it's it's how you got from Star Wars to Jurassic Park. <laughs> that, like that's all that was. It was that's a lot of neon. A lot of neon. Yeah, that's that's and, pretty and fair. Steven Spielberg was just having a good old time. Right. <laughs> yeah. And we were all along for the ride. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna remember that. How do you get from Star Wars to Jurassic Park? The answer: the 80s. When you were saying that you hate how people get nostalgic for the 70s, people, New York City, before it was cleaned up, yeah, a lot of great art came out of that. It was a dump. It literally was dirty. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Have you seen pictures? Like, there were no trash cleanups. (laughs) Literally just put trash in the street. (laughs) You know, that's one thing that's been amazing to see just I think I'm I would call myself maybe barely old enough to to remember this but we had the you had those public service announcements sort of in between the episodes of Schoolhouse Rock and things like that in the 70s but the the famous one with the sort of the the Native American standing on the side of the road and somebody throws their garbage out and you see him just shed this single tear you know and as a kid you sort of roll your eyes at it but it was it, you know, it's an epic thing. If you haven't seen it, you can find it really easily online, I'm sure. But honestly, like, that made people stop just throwing trash out, out of their car. <laughs> Before that started, you started seeing that on TV everywhere. People just did. And, mm-hmm. you know, my family didn't, but it was it was a common thing. You just drive down the road, you've got a bag of garbage, just throw it out the window. What I When I jokingly say that, you know, like people getting nostalgic for the 70s, it's yeah. it's that piece of it. It's it's the dirty stuff that you're talking about, <laughs> literally dirty. There's plenty of fun and happy memories and Schwinn <laughs> Stingray bikes and stuff. Every decade has something to give us. Some decades right. give us Indiana Jones and Freakonomics. I mean, I'm just saying it's it's a it's a thing. <laughs> well put. I wonder what will come out of this decade where people will be like, oh man, like I I have a one year old now, and I'm just like, God, I wonder what he's gonna be like. Rose tinted glasses. Rose yeah. tint my world. Yeah, that yeah, I came out of that was a good thing. So yeah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it is funny though because. I can remember in the 90s sort of looking around and saying, all these other decades are so obvious. You can look at somebody from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, immediately figure out by the clothes and everything else exactly what they were. But when you're in that decade, it's really hard to identify exactly what that is. What's the defining defining thing? And now, you know, you look back at somebody who's grunge or whatever, you, you can just say that's the 90s. That's really easy. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is for 2000 to 2010. And I have, you know, no idea what it's going to be for 2010 to 2020. But in, in several years, Baby we'll shark. look back and say, <laughs> what that could I've be. I've not heard Baby Shark. I've, I've managed to avoid it. Mwahaha. You know well what, done. Megan? There's going to be something else it, I won't. But... You, you got you to just go along for the ride, and then it's actually kind of fun. When they, when they did the remix of it at Coachella. I know, when I like, heard they did that, yes. I was like, for real? Like, that's, yes. that's like... So bizarre to me. Megan, it was awesome. Okay. I didn't listen to it either, but... It was my child Woodstock. It's all right. I, I, yeah. <laughs> your child's Woodstock. Um, <laughs> Did I just hear a snort? Yeah. <laughs> that was spectacular. Let's take a... Please leave that in so that I don't sound like a moron right now. <laughs> it wouldn't be the Let's... first time I've snorted on this podcast. Oh, God, that sounds horrible because we're talking about the 70s, but in the 80s. Oh, but... <laughs> 
Megan and I talked about Into the Night Minute, and or oh. we talked about the movie Into the Night, and we had a good old time. We had a good old time. <laughs> 80s fashion, questionable drug use, <laughs> you know. Not question, just their drug That's use. That's true. Yeah, yeah just, right. just. Oh, this thing. is why there's mirrors everywhere. Cool. All right. So. Yeah. Um, anyway. Let me bring you back to MASH. I feel like that will be a safe place yes. for us all. Uh, this is minute two of MASH, and I need to throw it out there. Listeners, if you know about Kim Atwood, please get in touch with me, because IMDb doesn't know about Kim Atwood, and the internet doesn't know about Kim Atwood, and it's pissing me off. Because, as we've mentioned, it's 2019, and I should be able to find out about people right. who have important roles in important movies. How did he just disappear back into the ether? I, I, I don't know. That is weird. It's amazing. Kim Atwood is going to play Hojon, who is an important character in this movie. And it so, wasn't yeah. a stage name as far as we know. As far as we know? No. Okay. No. Just credit MASH. History was in MASH. <laughs> was introduced yeah. in MASH. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. So, and, and then we finish our actor credits and we get into... The, the music credits, and then what do we have? Uh, art dire- Photography, art direction, orchestra, film editor. Uh, I'm trying to think if any of these names are jumping out to me. And they just, I mean, I, I recognize these names, but I'm so deep in the weeds now. Do I recognize these names because I read about MASH? Or <laughs> did Danford B. Green edit other important movies that I should be talking about here now? I'm just going to, like, hug my knees and rock back and forth. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Just to, what's the total runtime of the the MASH movie? Is it? It's uh, 116. So you've got 114 episodes after this one to talk about anything and everything. Yeah, we go. So having yeah. finished one of these, as you as you have as well, of course, but you know, just pace yourself. You'll get there. Yeah. yeah. Our last credit is the hairstyling by Edith Linden. You know, well, that's we're an... going to have some questions about the hairstyling in this movie, for the record, yes. right. when this movie is supposedly taking place. <laughs> that that certainly held true in the TV series as well. And I remember my yes. uh, my mom and dad being just all miffed about that. He would never have had hair like that. That's ridiculous. He oh, I like, love it. He looks like a damn hippie. So, And Happy Days did the same thing. The first two seasons felt very 50s, and then they just... At some point, that show became a show that really just was in the 70s, even though they, mm-hmm. they pretended it wasn't. Yeah, it's true. Hmm. And yeah, they're coming in for a late... We, we're, we're seeing the mash. Ta-da! We did it. We made it, guys. Yes, exactly. You actually see the see the <laughs> hospital, see the helicopters landing. We mentioned yesterday we have a Facebook group, we have a Twitter. Look up MASH Minute. You will find those places, including Googling, and you'll find MASHMinute.com. Hell, you mentioned I've done previous podcasts. If you go to onesteelsister.com, you can find links to all my shows. And you are also kind of just all over the place now with these with this thing. I love I embrace the multi-hyphenate. Isn't it great? Embrace the multi-hyphenate. Yes. You know, don't embarrass me by bringing out the term Renaissance man, but you know. <laughs> It's been brought up before. Renaissance um, Man, great Danny DeVito movie, by the way. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> great segue right there. That, was, there that was masterfully done. Yeah, as we said yesterday, um, I've guested on a lot of the Minute uh, minute podcasts, completed the Rocketeer Minute that we've got uh, with luck. Hopefully some more episodes coming. So uh, it, it's just been a terrifically fun thing to be a part of. And, of course, all of us uh, sort of pay homage and uh, send our thanks back to the original uh, Star Wars Minute mm-hmm. for 
kicking off this whole crazy idea and and uh, and actually getting it some uh, some credibility out in the world. Every time I hear podcasters and other like Max Fun podcasters mention like, hey, you know, there's there's a thing where they analyze movies by minutes. I like have to pull over because I'm gonna start fist pumping the air and that wouldn't be safe while driving because I'm just like. That's me. That's me. That's what I do. John Rodrick. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty dang exciting. And yeah, we wouldn't be here with without Pete and Alex. I know. And and, uh, and Gutterballs, I think, was the first one. But the, Pete and Alex of Star Wars Minute really made it an, an art form, a genre, if you will. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a good time. And they're just plugging away they've they made it through the prequels so hats off hats man off. that is amazing that was that was the time they not only made it through they made it interesting so we hope you're finding us interesting as you can tell this genre really lends itself to kind of just <laughs> taking you wherever the conversation takes you but we always bring it back to whatever's happening in this a minute of mash Anyone going to try and top that outro? Anyone going to try and top nope. that last line? I nope. didn't think so. Cool. Nope. <laughs> <laughs>